Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever and whenever you are watching or listening. This is the Holistic Monitor, and I'm your host, Nick Sconia. The Holistic Monitor podcast is a weekly show featuring guest interviews with discussions about self-discovery, philosophy, spirituality, and our relationship with the world around us. Your support this last year has meant the world to me, and you can now go to holisticmonitor.com to support the topics you want to hear with our new show merchandise, featuring hats, t-shirts, hoodies, and more. You can also support us by simply sharing your favorite episode with your followers. And with that, let's get the show started. Derek Jensen, uh, you are an author and a professor, and uh, I heard you first on uh, a TikTok clip, and that really, uh, it had a profound message to it. Unfortunately, I don't remember what the clip was. It was a while back, but I thought, you know, this guy, I'd like to get him on the show and uh, hear what he has to say about things in the world. Uh, So thank you for coming on to the show tonight. I'm really glad to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Now, I understand uh, from what I've picked around about what you do and and, uh, what you're into, uh, that it seems radical, green, revolution, these are the kind of words that seem to come up. Um, What are some of the obstacles that you're seeing to uh, live in harmony as far as a a species on this planet? Well, if I had to condense all of my work to a couple sentences or maybe one sentence, if you give me a semicolon, it would be this way of living won't last. And when it's over, I would prefer that there is more of wild nature left rather than less. Hmm. And so we can talk about any parts of that that you want, um just that um it's uh one of my books endgame really begins with the premise that uh civilization itself but especially industrial civilization is inherently unsustainable and um and it's systematically destroying life on the planet and you know we can talk about defined civilization we can talk because that doesn't mean all cultures doesn't mean all humans mm-hmm. um what it means is a very specific way of life so we can start there we can start with the notion that um i, I wrote another book about how uh humans consider ourselves to be the only ones who really matter that um you you can read lots of accounts of you know the 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 forest wastelands and if it's well, here's a better example that when we think of beautiful pieces of art, we think of the Sistine Chapel, we think of uh, Michelangelo's David, we think mm-hmm. of Mona Lisa. We don't think of birdsong. We don't right. think of a sunset. Yeah. And that's because wild nature, according to our perspective, is not purposeful, is not, you know, is not creative, is not, or we think of the best inventions of all time. We think of the the lever the screw the wheel 
um, gunpowder, you know, what, what have you, um, we don't think about metabolism mm. or proprioception, which is, which is the, right. how you tell where your hand is when it's behind your back. Yeah. Um, or we don't think about sex, you know, and that's a pretty extraordinary invention that, that evolution created. So we think that what we create and I, you know, I can go into any direction you want with any of this, yeah. but we think that what we create with our heads is what matters. And what nature creates is not really a creation. And one, one, one way to think about some of this is Thomas Berry, uh, who wrote the dream of the earth. He was a, he was a extraordinary human being. Um, he wrote about how us destroying forests is like burning the great works of art. You wouldn't, mm. You wouldn't burn the Mona Lisa so that you can heat hot dogs. Yeah. Yet that's exactly what we're 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 doing. So we can go that direction. We can talk about how it's really not personal. The, the, the destruction isn't my personal choices. It's the entire culture pushing us in direction. So whatever direction you want to go, I'm happy to go. I'm happy to to bloviate on any of those. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, now looking at civilization, uh, I've always wondered what the turn of events was that really spun us out of control. I know there's a lot of idealism to the uh, Native Americans or Aborigines in general that live with the land and kind of in harmony. Uh, my understanding, even in the Americas, that the land was kind of curated, that meadows were created to make better hunting grounds. Um, but there was a general harmony with uh, nature or the sacred hoop. You know, uh, but there was something that happened uh, somewhere that spun things out of control. It seems to be some kind of tribal warfare, protectionism, building walls, building cities, uh, condensed uh, cultures in, uh, you know, in the Middle East. In Egypt, you have examples of that and something that was almost uh, disharmonious to uh, nature. Well, there's a, a few directions that I'd like to go with that. Um, one of them is that uh, there were actually a lot of areas in North America that were not uh, particularly managed, um, that there were a lot of places that were far in between villages or far in between communities or would be uh, basically battlegrounds and would be not particularly inhabited because of that. And so... It's, it's it's really important to me, at least, to uh, the the reason I'm bringing this up is because back in the early '90s there was this very strong movement to say was really from the right wing to say that nature has basically because humans evolved and humans are natural. Therefore, anything humans create is natural. Therefore, chainsaws are natural. Therefore, clear cuts are natural. Oh, wow. That was sort of from the right wing. And I was fighting that. that back then. And these yeah. days, it comes from the left wing with, um, it's, it's the same story, but the opposite direction. Hmm. So it used to be that chainsaws, are, the, the clear cuts are natural because humans are natural. And so there was no nature culture distinction. And these days, the argument is that the Amazon rainforest was a human creation. 
mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. that humans have created everything and that nature is a, to use a quote from, to use the title of one book, a rambunctious garden. Right. The humans have controlled everything forever. And mm-hmm. yes, humans affect our land base, but so do capybaras, so do buffalo, so do prairie dogs. So we can talk about prairie dogs and buffalo creating the prairie just as much as we can talk about humans. But again, it's what the human the human uh, influence, like I was reading something the other day, and they really do say that the Amazon rainforest is a human creation, which is silly because the Amazon rainforest existed before humans evolved. But leave that aside. Um, that uh, I was reading something the other day about... Uh, 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 what are they called? Keystone species in the Amazon. And one of the primary keystone species are Brazil nuts. Um, Cause evidently they help influence. I mean, everybody eats them, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I believe it's tapirs, tapers. I don't, I don't want to say T-A-P-I-R, the little pachyderms. Um, they're one of the primary movers of Brazil nuts. So you could argue that the, that the tapers are the, you know, creators of the Amazon rainforest by carrying the Brazil nuts around. So, right. so, so that ends up being a really complicated thing. But now back to your question. Um, there are arguments, and we can certainly go this direction, that uh, the, the problem really started with agriculture. Mm. And yeah. there's a fundamental change happens when you perceive the world, when you when you convert the entire land base into food for humans. And a couple things happen when you do that. One of them is that you destroy the capacity of the land to support anybody else. And the other is by converting all that productivity, uh, by which I mean the Brazil nuts that could be eaten by the tapers, if you convert those to human use, Mm. then not only does that harm the Brazil nuts and the tapers, but it also uh, makes it so you can have more humans there. Right. So your human population can go up, but a couple of things happen. One is that if you can create a storage and if you get an excess of grain, that means somebody can steal it. And if somebody can steal it, that means you have to have a way to protect it. Right. And so that leads to, but you have extra people, which means you can feed the extra people, which means you can have a class of people whose job it is to protect stuff. And we call those soldiers. And then, the next step is that by converting the entire land base into human use, you degrade the capacity of the land to to support humans or non-humans in the future. Mm, so what happens right. is once you uh, commit yourself to that way of life, you exceed carrying capacity, and then you continue to degrade carrying capacity. So you have a choice. Either A, you can voluntarily give it up b you can collapse or c you can conquer somebody else's territory and the good news for you is that you have a standing army because you've got the excess and so if you have if you've cut down your forests and turned them into war chariots you're going to have a competitive advantage over your navy i mean over your neighbor and then you can conquer them and you start the process over and this isn't all theoretical because when we the first written myth of Western civilization is Gilgamesh deforesting the right. the hills and valleys of Iraq in yeah. order to make a great city. And we'll talk about the cities in a second. And the 
the, the Arabian Peninsula was oak savanna. The Near East was heavily forested. We've all heard of the Cedars of Lebanon. They Seriously. still have one on their flag. Um, Greece was heavily forested. One of the dead Greek guys, uh, I think it was um, Plato, was complaining that uh, deforestation was harming water quality. Uh-huh. And I'm reasonably sure that the Greek government said we need to study this for a few years and make sure there's really a correlation. Um, but anyway, the, the, the forests of North Africa were felled to create the Egyptian and Phoenician navies. Mm. And that, of course, gave them an advantage over others. So once you start this, 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 uh, this process, it becomes really a self-perpetuating cycle. So that was the, the first direction I want to go with this. The second direction I want to go with this is, I said earlier that civilization is inherently unsustainable. And that's nice, Derek, but what is civilization? Because some people think, Civilization is all human culture, but I define civilization as a way of life that's characterized by the growth of cities. Hmm. And that's defensible both linguistically and historically. Linguistically, because civilization comes from the root meaning, root kivitetas, which means state or city. And also when we think about it historically, you know, people talk about the rise of civilization, always talking about cities, Gilgamesh, you know, the, the, the near Eastern cities and, but that's nice, Derek, but what's a city? So a city I've defined as people living in numbers large enough to require the importation of resources. Mm, okay. And that's to separate them from villages, camps, etc. Right. But two things happen as soon as you require, require being the key word, as you require the importation of resources, it means your way of life can never be sustainable. Because if you require the importation of resources, it means you've denuded the landscape of that particular resource. And so as your city grows, there will be an ever larger area that you need to, to, to take from and you need to put waste on. I mean, New York City, where do they get their wood? Where do they get their brick? Where do they get their water? Where do they where do they put their poop? And we know where they put their poop, by the way. They used to put it in the ocean and now they ship it by rail to some county in Alabama. Yeah, um, I've heard that. <laughs> and um, so anyway, if you have a city, it it is going to need an ever larger. So when I was a baby environmentalist, this is 1989 or something, mm-hmm. um, I remember sitting with a with a, a friend who was a, a more experienced environmentalist sitting at dinner and he drew on the napkin. He put a little circle in the center and they said, this is a city. And then he put a bigger circle and he said, this is the area the city needs to draw from. And as the city grows, it needs to draw from an ever larger area. Mm-hmm. And so Again, if you have, if you require the importation of resources, your way of life can never be sustainable. And the second thing it means is your way of life must be based on violence. Because if you require the importation of resources and the next people in the next watershed over won't trade you, you'll take them. Mm-hmm. This isn't like trading buffalo robes for shells, sort of luxuries or extra things that you don't need. This is if you require, again, requires the key word. Yeah. It means we could all have this wonderful spiritual attitude it doesn't matter because if you require oil to run your economy you're not going to let the oil economy we could all become just you know the most pacifistic personally wonderful people in the world still need oil you mm-hmm. still need wood you still need the gold and the the copper and everything else right. so that's and then there's one more direction we can go but if you want to ask another question we can hold off on the other one whatever you want to do well, um, in, in thinking about that uh, and then correlate with civilization, starting with agriculture, uh, something in the Hebrew alphabet, the, uh, the first letter is a plow. 
mean that the uh, beginnings of civilization is the ability to farm. And then the next one is the house. The next letter stands for the house. So it kind of tells you, you know, first we start farming and then we start building these structures and we stay put. Um, I think uh, the Mayans uh, had a, an idea that they did utilize, which was that at a certain point in time, their civilization would get to a point where it wasn't sustainable. And they had to give the keys back to the jungle, give civilization keys back to the jungle, uh, basically putting the temples and all their cities um, you know, into overgrowth. And then they would disappear back into the jungle, um, which I believe they had to follow that based on their resources being limited, or maybe it was a drought or something like that. Well, that, you know, it's interesting. When I said that they have these three choices, they can either collapse, mm -hmm. voluntarily change their way of life, or conquer others, um, I wasn't saying those rhetorically. Those are actually choices that, yeah. that and there, there have been cultures who have chosen each one of those. Right. And, um, and I was thinking of, and I don't, I'm not an archaeologist, so I don't know for sure, but I've heard the same stories about the Mayans that mm -hmm. they actually said, this isn't really working. So let's, yeah. <laughs> we give up. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the so. advantage they had is that the, the nearby lands had been not destroyed enough, that they right. actually could go back to subsistence farming. Yeah. And yeah. we are not really faced with that. They weren't in as great as an overshoot as we are. Correct. Yeah. We're at a point where you could almost say uh, that we've definitely, the planet has never sustained this type of uh, culture. Uh, there yeah, may yeah. have been previous cultures, but they were never, nothing ever like this. Well, they weren't global, um, you know. Global, e yeah. Even among the American Indians, you know, there were the mound builders, there, there have been civilizations, there were the Aztecs, right. there have been civilizations in the Americas, the Incas, and they did, you know, every civilization follows the same route of, of mm -hmm. building up, basically destroying the soil. Um, you know, there's that, that, line people say about families that you know if mom ain't happy then ain't nobody happy right. and <laughs> the way this applies ecologically is if the soil isn't happy then ain't nobody happy right um the soil is the basis for terrestrial yeah. life i've seen a, a meme going around which is that uh, you grow beans and corn and squash together and in, in uh you are giving the uh, proper balance of nutrients from each one you know but I think you can only, again, do that uh, within a certain amount of years in the same soil bed. Uh, you'd have to keep moving the the, uh, the garden, you know. Well, a, a question, a question that, okay, I'm gonna throw out, an, I'm gonna throw out a number here, but I want people to know that I don't know this number. I'm, I'm, my memory is bad enough. I don't remember what it is. <laughs> but people have asked before, what is the carrying capacity of a re, a, a reasonably fertile region of human beings? Mm. Yeah. And I think it's, it's like one or two people per square mile. It's, it's, you know, oh, wow. you can, that's amazing. And I could be off, let's say I'm off by a factor of 10, you know? Mm -hmm. right. So let's say it's 10 or 20 people per square mile. It, the point is it's not, it's not, <laughs> it's not. So yes, you could have beans and squash if you have a fairly small area that's devoted to that. And then, right. and as you said, you know, you move it in 20 years and then that's just, I mean, that's why there are annuals, annual right. plants is to cover over. Annual plants are kind of like scabs. You know, they, they're the first responders who just cover <laughs> yeah. over a wounded area. So there's a yeah. plant in the, in the Western United States called fireweed 
And one reason it's called that is, because, well, two reasons. One is that when you have a hillside of it, it looks like fire because it's all red. And the other reason is that it's usually one of the first plants that comes in after a fire. And okay. so, the, you know, you have a big fire and then you got fireweed come in and it's going to help keep the soil in place until the perennials can start their job of really doing the, the long-term holding of soil together. And so it's the same thing. You could have beans and corns and squash, and then, you know, you decide to move over three miles somewhere or a half a mile or however far, and then the annuals come in. And then a couple of years later, the perennials start moving in. And I mean, it's just it, succession is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Right. Actually changing instead of doing the same thing over and over again um, is a good thing. It seems to be part of what, uh, you know, a lesson on this planet would be is that everything changes <laughs> in life in general. And it would be good to adjust things and allow things to recompensate before, you know, kind of like in a, in a rhythmic pattern. You know, the um, I remember when I interviewed Thomas Berry back in 1993 or two or something, mm -hmm. and he himself was. He'd been an environmentalist. I think he was born in 1912 or something. Was just, mm. He was, you know, I remember he, when I said, when I, when I interviewed him, he said he remembered when uh, automobiles came into North Carolina and he didn't like it. <laughs> um, he didn't like their effects. Anyway, so the point is he was, he was an elder at that point. And one of the things I said to him is, so nature wants to be in sort of a state of dynamic equilibrium, right? And he said, no, he thinks it wants to be in a state of creative disequilibrium. Mm. And we could have an entire discussion about what that means. And I still don't know, but I think it's, it, I'm thinking about what you just said about, I mean, I think there are places that are in sort of an equilibrium, uh -huh. um, but then things get stirred up by, oh, I want to tell a story if you don't mind, yeah, um, yeah. which is, uh, but uh, years ago, um, so hold on. What's the carrying capacity of humans in a in a in a healthy forest? What was it? It's like one per square mile. Yeah, it's about one per square mile. One per square mile. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Um, it's not a lot. No, it's not a lot. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so years years ago, I was I was writing about how there are two million dams in the United States. That includes itty bitty dams. Mm. Two million dams in the United two States. Two million dams. Wow. Yeah, sixty thousand dams over. Uh, two meters tall, so that's 13 feet, and 70,000 dams over one meter tall, that's three and a half feet. And I was talking about how, you know, if we only remove one of those dams every day, it would take 200 years to remove all those one meter dams. Right. And so I'm going on about this, and there was this, this hydrologist said to me, gosh, Derek, you can't talk about taking out dams, because taking out a dam is the worst thing you can do, because it causes a big flood, and it'll just destroy the river. I didn't know, so I, I started asking people, now, the first thing I would do is I would call up people and I would say, hey, so if I took out a dam, uh, would that be good or bad for the river? Hello? Hello? <laughs> They'd hang up on me because, you know, it's obviously it's crazy talk. Yeah. But, but so I, I'd call them back and I, I this time after enough time had passed, they'd forgotten about me. I'd call them back and I said, OK, so it's 100 years from now. The electrical grid has collapsed and people in your community are asking you whether it's better to take out a dam all at once or to wait until it fails eventually. Cause all dams will fail eventually. Yeah. And you know, no humans are going to get harmed. Is this better for the river? And this is going to have a point in the end. And 
um, they all they all said the same thing, which is take it out, take it out now. Uh-huh. And they also said, you know, a dam breaking is just is just a big flood, and rivers flood all the yeah. time, right? And they were also saying that an individual dam is not a big deal because rivers get dammed all the time. They get dammed by mudslides, they get dammed by volcanoes, they get dammed by ice, right. all this stuff. The problem is that you got 2 million dams in the United States. You know, it's, it, again, it's no big deal to have one dam here. Of course, it's going to harm that river, but it'll eventually fail. Anyway, the, the point is one of these people I called uh, was a fisheries biologist for a river that's undammed. And she said it floods all the time. And every time it floods, she said it breaks her heart because it kills deer, it kills fish, it kills salamanders, it kills trees. Huh. But also every time it floods, it makes her really happy because it creates all sorts of new habitat. And first off, I have to say also, we misdefine rivers, that rivers don't flow in channels. Rivers ride across the landscape like snakes. That comes back yeah. to your point about everything changing. Right. That if you, Oh, have you seen those wonderful maps of the Mississippi River and how all it's like different colors for where it went different years back in 1800 to 1850. It's just beautiful. It goes everywhere. Yeah, that um, does. Yeah. Before it was uh, basically ch- corralled, you know. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So the point of this whole story is she said that every time a river floods, it's short term habitat loss for long term habitat gain. Mm. And okay. yeah, exactly. I, yeah. And a couple things. One is as a metaphor, that's like, why do we stay in bad relationships? Why do we stay in bad jobs? Because of the fear of short-term lo- habitat loss for long-term habitat gain. Mm-hmm. This is what motivates so much uh, misery, frankly. Yeah. And then yeah. on the on the ecological scale, this comes back. And the reason I wanted to tell the story is because it makes the point you were making about how, you know, just this state of, of change, you know, that a river doesn't stay in one channel. It jumps over here which of course harms the trees and salamanders and everybody over here mm-hmm. but it's what a river does it's, it's what, what it has does. to do right uh flux i think would be a good word you know uh, there's an all constant flux and it seems that nature likes that constant flux that there's uh, equilibrium in being able to um harmonize with a flux uh, there's something about rivers flooding. I want to say Tigris Euphrates, I believe that was one of the main proponents that allowed for fertile, uh, the fertile crescent to be there was the flooding waters. And the same with the Nile River, the uh, the, the mud that would get flooded out of the Nile was what allowed that civilization to exist there for as long as it did. Yep. Um, you know, that would be a factor. And definitely, I, I know myself, I uh, traveling uh, along the, I believe it's the Columbia River, uh, between Oregon and uh, Washington, and I definitely thought, you know, well, why does that? Why is that dam there? Wouldn't it be nice to just let the river go and let it do its thing in a natural way? I know it's probably saving some houses down the the way, you know, from being flooded, but that's something about damming the uh, the vital uh, life force of the earth. You know, something that's a in constant flux. And I was in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah, this was a 90s, 90 something, and um, they had dammed the river. And I thought, you damn the river in the desert. There was no water that ran through this empty uh, river channel. 
it was completely dry. And I thought, this is a desert. This is not a good place to be taking the water away from the resource for all the species. Uh, just in general, it seems like a really bad practice. <laughs> well, bad it ecology, is. You know? <laughs> and, and for the record, 25% of rivers no longer reach the ocean mm. in the world. Yeah, it's wild. Wild. There's just in the just in the past 30 years, there's been an ecological catastrophe that we don't think about much in the West. But the by mass, the largest um, migration of animals in the not not in the ocean uh, was the Mekong Delta catfish. There are these huge like 600 pound catfish and they would migrate up the river to, to spawn. And uh, it was by mass greater than all those big herds we've seen on the Serengeti, greater than the bison. Wow. And just in the last 30 years, their population has completely collapsed because of, of dams, uh, especially upriver in China, um, that change the flow of the river and disallow. Yeah. You know, and people have known this forever. This is one of the things that just kills me is that I don't remember who it was, Robert the Bruce or somebody you know, some king from fairly old and in, in uh, what is now the in, somewhere in Britain or Scotland, there were a couple of kings who passed laws saying that you cannot you cannot obstruct the flow of any river in his kingdom. Hmm. And <laughs> it's like this is 500 years ago. And now they put yeah. in the dams on the Columbia and think that salmon are going to survive. Wow. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, by the way, exactly. I want to say one more thing about, about uh, dams in the Columbia. I'm sorry about floods yeah. in the Columbia, which is when I was first questioning this whole thing, is it right to talk about people taking out dams and, you know, floods really harm rivers. I was doing a radio program out of Olympia, Washington. I, I mean, a call in show through Olympia. Yeah. And I was talking about this dilemma. It's like, well, I don't know if it's better to say, take out dams. I had multiple callers call up and say, Derek, um, do you ever hear about the Missoula flood? Hmm. The Missoula flood, oh, 12,000 years ago, um, and there were like a number of Missoula floods. It's happened again and again. That okay. there was, during the last ice age, there was an ice dam formed up in oh. western Montana. Oh. And it ended up uh, eventually backing up so much water that the water lifted the glacier and then it broke up. The, the glacier broke up. And there was, I believe, six times as much water flowing down the Columbia as that drained as the rest of the freshwater rivers in the world combined. Wow. Huge flood. And I never wow. can remember if it was 200 feet deep and 60 miles an hour or 60 miles an hour and 200 feet deep, but it, it was, it carried boulders the size of houses all the mm. way down to Portland and then up the Willamette Valley. Wow. It was I a think, huge uh, flood. Randall Carlson goes into that a lot. That sounds very familiar. Uh, the Scablands or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And all the coolies were made then. Mm -hmm. And um, this is, uh, the, the point is that salmon survived that, sturgeon survived right. that, the region right. survived that, the, the humans survived that. Yeah. And um, individual humans, not so much. <laughs> individual salmon, individual sturgeon. Right. But the salmon yeah. as a community, which is a whole other thing we can talk about if you want, which I love this line by um, Paul Stamets, which is nature loves a community. Mm -hmm. and yeah, it seems to be that way, doesn't it? And I always think that when we talk about that, when we talk about evolution, I think, I think sometimes we're looking at the wrong primary unit that we talk about it in terms of individual species. And yes, I think individual species should absolutely be protected. I'm not saying that, but, but cause people will use that argument, 
but what I'm saying is that what is important to nature is the functioning of the entire redwood forest community or what is important is the entire salmon dependent community uh-huh. and again i don't take that to mean individual species aren't important but what i take it to mean unfortunately for us individuals is that individuals aren't quite so important to nature i mean we live and die we're expendable literally yeah um but what is important is the functioning the ongoing functioning of this dynamic uh, I would call it a being, this dynamic larger being who is the forest or who is the the, the river. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I'm sorry if I'm getting off topic. No, 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 that's good. Um, and I feel like with the forests, that's kind of, uh, it's an accepted thing that there's going to be a harmony or harmonious balance or a way of the woods um, and that humans really should be trying to find their way to fit into that uh, cycle rather than try to just chop the trees down and, you know, build a house. <laughs> well, I love, I love the line I heard many years ago, which was um, when they talk about survival of the fit, they don't actually mean survival of the fittest, but instead survival of the way you fit into your community. You know, people talk about how it's survival, the strongest, the best able to exploit their surroundings. But again, if you give me a couple of semicolons, I can, I think I can disprove that in one sentence, which yeah. is, those creatures who've survived in the long run have survived in the long run, semicolon. You don't survive in the long run by hyper-exploiting your surroundings, semicolon. You survive in the long run by actually improving your habitat. Hmm. So salmon improve the forest health by simply living and dying there. And bears perform functions for the forest. And how you survive in the long term is by... Um, by making your habitat better. How do we think, you know, I don't know if you've read these, there's this great book and horrifying book called mm-hmm. Sea of Slaughter by Farley Mowat. And mm-hmm. it basically consists of contemporary accounts of what North America was like prior to conquest. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there would be flocks of passenger pigeons so large, they darkened the sky for days at a time. And, and whales were a hazard to shipping because there were so many of them. And in mm-hmm. San Francisco Bay, um, and in some places off the coast of California and off the coast of Massachusetts, there would be so many whales. Evidently whales have fairly bad breath and <laughs> there would be so many whales that the air would stink from their breath. And this wow. is extraordinary. Right. And, you know, you mentioned Columbia, you know, we, we've all heard stories of, you know, rivers so thick with salmon that they're black and roll. I have a picture at home that's still from, from Alaska, from somebody took it and sent it to me. It's from 2001 or something of this river. And if you look at the banks, the the edges of the river, you see a little bit of gold and then the bottom of the river is black. Mm -hmm. And then if you look really closely, you see the reason the river is black is because it is literally full of salmon. Wow. You can't, you cannot see the bottom of the, the river because of, because of them. And that's how it was like all up and down the coast. And anyway, so sea of slaughter is, is how is all these different accounts of different beings um, that if you look to the bottom of rivers and or bottom of estuaries, you could see cod. You couldn't see the you couldn't see the wa- you couldn't see the sand. You see nothing but cod, mm. and cod. Yeah. There'd be co- banks of cod so thick that it would slow the passage of of boats. Wow. Anyway, <laughs> the point here the point here is that how did the world get to be that way in the first place? It's right. not by everybody exploiting. It's by everybody 
making the world a better place by living and dying. And that, by the way, is also central to all my work. That I think that that's the central, the central moral question for me is, is how do I build up a morality? How do I understand morality? What is moral? And the question is really, did you leave the world a better place because you were born? Uh, uh -huh. um, by world, I mean the real yeah. physical world. I don't necessarily mean the capitalist economy. Um, yeah, right. An imprint, right? <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I want to say that in, in thinking about that, uh, there was uh, the desire of Gilgamesh to achieve uh, divinity, to, you know, to go to heaven, to leave. And there's a lot of that uh, mindset that is uh, pervasive, which is that uh, the reward is somewhere else, is that there's a goal to go somewhere else and, and to leave here. Uh, but it seems that if you're doing it right, you're looking at actions that are going to be, that you're going to be responsible for with a 10-year with a glance uh, in that idea that when you're making a decision you want to look at the 10-year cycle of that decision to make sure it's still good. It's a still, is this a good decision 10 years from now? Um, and that, I guess, is an idea for, are you leaving the place better when you leave? Um, I wanted to take a diversion from that almost in an opposite direction, but not so much. To get your thoughts on uh, modern technology, uh, most specifically AI, there's a lot of talk that, uh, a lot of fear with AI, but there's also a lot of talk that perhaps utilizing AI would help to manage uh, this amount of people and the issues and problems that people, the people of Earth have, uh, from being maybe all separate, all in our national countries, in our own little isolated areas, to being more unified and uh, regulated by something that has the ability to regulate 8 billion people. What are your <laughs> thoughts on uh, on that? I mean, there's not a lot of places we can go without going to um, uh, loss of population. And if that doesn't happen, how do you manage 8 billion people, 8 billion parts of anything? Well, a couple of things. One of them is I think that uh, Facebook, Twitter, etc. show us that... Um, these sorts of non-face-to-face communications do nothing but create happiness and joy hmm. and uh, unity among people. Right. Um, I'm totally sarcastic <laughs> here. Yeah. Um, that I I I was just reading uh, Graham Linehan's uh, autobiography or memoir, and he was a big believer in. How one of the examples he used of why he was so excited about Twitter at first was that he said, so the Beatles were great and you had it's a coincidence that Paul McCartney and John Lennon grew up near each other and happened to know each other. And now with Twitter, you can have somebody from Liverpool work with somebody from Mumbai. And and it's like, it's not really how it's working out. <laughs> um, so there's so there's that. Second is. Uh, there's there's three directions I want to go. That was the first one. Second direction I want to go with that is that we always have to remember that we are in overshoot and someday the human population will be lower and every cell in my body wants for this to happen in a reasonable fashion, in, a, in an orderly retreat. 
Right. And I don't, I don't see any evidence for that. And yeah, right. I, and and so I wish it was. It's the same with technology that I I wish we would we would uh, make an orderly sort of an orderly withdrawal from this continuous technological escalation. And I don't see it happening. And in fact, I love, there's one of the Doobie Brothers albums and, and it's like, are, are, am I now so old that nobody knows who the Doobie Brothers is anymore? But anyway, the Doobie Brothers, a band from the seventies, <laughs> um, they had an album called uh, What Were Once Vices Are Now Habits. And I think about mm -hmm. that a lot because only 120 years ago, um, industrial electricity was not very common. And excuse me, when they introduced the telephone, Carl Jung wrote about how much he hated telephones because people can call you up at any time of the day and just interrupt you and how it makes everything so fast. And he had this line in there about all haste is of the devil. Hmm. And like, dude, you have no idea how bad it's going to get. Right. And um, so that is a hundred years ago, people introducing telephones, like, oh, that's ridiculous. And then now if you took away people's Wi-Fi, there would be blood on the streets. And yeah. so th what, what, there are these things that, and I grew up without Wi-Fi. I grew up without computers. I'm one of those dinosaurs. <laughs> and, um, and I get it too. I mean, the, 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 the internet goes out and it's like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Yeah. Well, maybe maybe I'll read a book or something. Anyway, right. um, the 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 point is that I actually I got off the point. The point I was trying to make <laughs> was that we can have all the AI and all the management and all the everything else we want, but that doesn't alter the fact that humans have exceeded carrying capacity, and uh, and we can attempt to use technology to. See, see, okay, I'll just say it. Okay, yes, carrying capacity or, or overshooting carrying capacity consists of two things. One of them is too many humans. The other is too much technology huh. and too much resource consumption. Same diff as too much technology in right. many ways. Okay. And people always act like, oh no, the problem isn't too many people. It's too much technology is too much consumption by Americans or Canadians because they consume more than we do. So let's blame them. Um, that was a joke. Is we're all no, the same. <laughs> um, anyway, so either that or they they'll oh, go the same resource. Yeah, yeah. So so they'll, they'll they'll try to break it apart. But the truth is, it's both are our problems. And I, I I one reason I know that the primary concern that's expressed by those in power, whatever that means. Um, about population is bogus is that when birth rates in Russia or Japan fall and they go below replacement level, they freak out because they say, oh my gosh, our economy is going to collapse because we have to continue to have growth. Mm. And so they do things like have sex holidays where they send people home to have sex so that they hope to have babies. Wow. And so that's... That's one reason that that people, many people rightly consider a concern about overpopulation to be racist, because even though race doesn't really work since Japan is not white, but it's, it's classist, mm -hmm. because classist, when in industrialized yeah. nations,
people stop having babies, it's a it's a problem. But right. in non-industrializations, when they do have a baby, it's a problem. It's, it's like that that but that doesn't alter the fact that stupid analysis doesn't alter the fact that there's more people on the planet that we can support. So it doesn't matter how you manage. And then further, one of the management techniques I'm sure would be the a better distribution of, say, for example, food resources. Right. But there's always going to be unintended consequences or perhaps intended consequences. And one of the things I mean by that is that most of the people I know, or the most people I've worked with in, for example, Mexico or wherever, would they were opposed to NAFTA. And they've been opposed to, you know, we think it's a great idea to export U.S. food to some starving nation. But what ends up happening is that ends up destroying their local food networks. Right. And so they get all sorts of corn from Iowa. All of a sudden, the, the, the people who are happily growing corn for their community can no longer meet those prices. They can't make a living. And so they end up moving to North America to, you know, take crap jobs in in the central valley it's it's wow. just it ends up and i'm not sure that better management is going to solve that so yeah. the second thing is that physical reality we always we never have we no matter what we talk about with management the wood has to come from somewhere for new york city and as long as you got more people it's going to be more wood it's going to be more food it's going to be more water going to be more poop produced so management yeah management can do some good but and then the third thing is that this might be a good time to talk about Lewis Mumford and authoritarian and democratic techniques. Hmm. And what I'm, what the, 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 I want to introduce the term technic. It's not mine. It's Lewis Mumford's T E C H N I C. And it, what he, what his, his, some of his analysis was that technologies don't emerge in a vacuum, that they emerge from a certain mindset and they lead to a certain mindset. I live on Talawa land. The Talawa lived here for at least 12,500 years, and they never invented refrigerators. And it's not because they were too stupid to invent refrigerators. It's just there were so many salmon. Why bother? You don't need food stays fresher in the stream anyway, right. and there's no need for it. So you have to have a certain mindset to create a certain technology. And then also, once you create a technology, it's going to lead to a certain mindset. And a great example of this is the other day I was at the grocery store, which is about two miles from where I live. And I drove home and I realized, oh, shoot, I forgot toilet paper. So I drove back to the grocery store. If I didn't have a car, I would have taken a list. Right. And But because I have a car and because it's two miles, like, who cares? And, <laughs> and so technology changes how you perceive the world. And... He argued, and I really agree with this, and there's a very short essay called Authoritarian and Democratic Techniques, maybe 10 pages long. I really recommend people read it, written in the 60s, hmm. about how techn techniques can really be either democratic or authoritarian, and they can spring from and, and lead to either a, a democratic power structure or authoritarian power structure. And it's pretty easy that if it's a thing that, okay, examples will make it clear. So pottery is a democratic technic because nobody can control your access to clay mm. or mud gotcha. and same with bows and arrows you know if 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 you control my source of bows and arrows if i have the knowledge i can make them myself 
Right. On the other hand, if you have something that requires metal, if you have metal pots, if you have guns, and the point is, you know, bows and arrows are still weapons, so it's not weapon or not. But if yeah. you have guns, that means that if that in order to have a mine, you have to have a police and military system to enforce it. Oh, here's a great example. Somebody was interviewing me 10 years ago. Um, and he said he was a dedicated Marxist who believed that it was possible to have an industrial economy with no exploitation of anyone, hmm. purely voluntary exchanges everywhere. Hmm. And he's, I, I said, do you have cities? And he said, yes. I said, okay, how do you get around in your cities? He said, by buses. I said, great. What are your buses made of? He said, metal. I said, great. So how do you get people to work in the mines? And he said, well, you, you pay them. I said, well, you know, mining is such a horrible existence that it was one of the first forms of slavery. And it's just, it's just dreadful, but I'm going to give that to you. I'll, I'll give you, you just pay them exorbitant amounts of money, not exploiting them. But every hard rock mine on the planet has polluted groundwater, every single one. Right. So I said, what do you do about the people who live next to the mine? He said, you pay them, you pay them to leave. I said, what if they won't leave? They don't want to leave. He said, well, you pay them more. I said, no, they've lived here for 5,000 years and their ancestors are buried here and they refuse to leave. What do you do? He said, how many are there? I said, I don't know, 500. What difference does it make? He said, well, the million people in the city vote and they vote that those 500 people have to be evicted. And I say, oh, so you've gone from purely voluntary exchanges <laughs> within less than a minute to land theft from indigenous people perhaps genocide right. and democratic empire, authoritarianism, yeah. also you can have a mine. And the mm -hmm. point is that if you have a mine, that means you have to have a police system to protect it because people are going to steal the, the mined material. Yeah. And you have to have a military in order to take the land for the mine. you got to kick the people off. That's not even including non-humans. So Mumford's argument, we basically summarized you know, 15 books of Lewis Mumford right here in three sentences or something that basically if you have, except he's much smarter than we are or than I am at least. Um, and he, so, so he argued that some technologies lead to certain authoritarianism. So the way this ties back to AI is that, oh, one more thing. He said that also the authoritarian techniques were authoritarian because they end up in charge. They, they actually end up in charge, not us. And I know that sounds crazy, but think about it. Are cities designed for human beings or for cars? Yeah, right. They're designed cities for cars. They're definitely designed for cars, yeah. And uh, we keep talking about, oh my gosh, fossil fuels are going to destroy the planet. And it's like, okay, it's destroying the planet. Can we just stop? It's like, no. Why not? Because the fossil fuels are in charge. Right. I mean, it's not yeah. some sort of cosmic thing where the machines are going, ha, ha, ha. Instead, it's <laughs> just that we end up valuing you know, we have this bribe that that they give to us. They deliver to us. They, the technologies, deliver all these things. They deliver the ability for you and I to talk at a long distance. They deliver um, strawberries in January, things that look like strawberries, at least in January. Mm -hmm. um, and in exchange for everything else, in exchange for giving up everything else. So the point is right. that when we talk about AI, so... I had a computer. I have the worst computer, the stupidest computer store in the world. I spilled chicken teriyaki on my computer and it destroyed it. Most expensive chicken teriyaki I've ever had. Right, right. <laughs> so then I had to get a new computer, but my heart, everything had crapped out, uh, except the hard drive was still good. So I put the hard drive in the new computer. The first thing it did is ask for my BitLocker key. I'm like, I have no idea. And then 
after that, uh, it said, well, you can get your BitLocker key by signing into your Microsoft account. And I'm not some like conspiracy theorist, Bill Gates, the devil. I mean, I don't like Bill Gates, but the point is right. that, <laughs> that I spent like hours. I couldn't remember my Microsoft password. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had it saved on my computer. It was saved on the computer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, right. and so my, my point is that it all resolved nicely in this case. But the point is that Microsoft actually controlled my access to all of my all of my manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Right. And because it's so convenient for me, I mean, with a with a lesser tech lesser technology, with less high technology, if they were just in stacks of paper. Yeah. Yes, that's really inconvenient, but I still control it. Right. It's a manageable and, resource, basically. And yeah. nobody can take my access to it. And in this case, again, I'm not saying that Microsoft wanted to steal my manuscripts, but simply because I couldn't forget the pa- I couldn't remember the password. Yeah. Um. Like You're I could have lost resource. everything. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And so my point is that when we talk about AI in this way. You know, it, it kind of cracks me up when people say, oh, we're going to live forever. We're going to merge with the machines and then we'll like upload our consciousness to the computer. It's like, have you ever had a computer crash? Right. What happens if there's if the grid crashes? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like so they're all dependent on this whole complex. Oh, I want to say I want to go one more direction here for a second, which, OK, I'm not going to get into the whole COVID thing. Um, that's not my point here. But what I do want to say, which I think is really fascinating, is I was fascinated by the whole COVID thing. Again, I don't care about any other stuff right here. But I started following it about a week or so or 10 days after Wuhan shut down because after Wuhan shut down 10 days later somewhere, um, a Hyundai factory in South Korea shut down Hmm. because they could no longer get parts from Wuhan. And it's the, the point is that this whole industrial economy is so highly interdependent Yeah, and um, if you cut off, it's extraordinary to me that people's lives were affected in South Korea because of a city shutting down, I don't know, 1500 miles away or something. And, um, I know we haven't, this was not the question, but, uh, people ask me what lesson have I learned from the whole COVID shutdown thing? Mm-hmm. And I don't think those in power have learned this, but it's like relocalized food supplies. Right. And it's the yeah. same thing is true with with the coming of collapse, it doesn't matter whether it's going to come through peak oil or through anything else, like relocalized food supplies. That's my answer to every question. Yeah. Who do you think is going to win the Super Bowl? Relocalized food supplies. <laughs> um, because, because ultimately all this large, the, the, the reason I'm talking about this with AI is because at some point this way of life can't continue. And at some point we're still going to have to eat. Yeah. And there's a great line by Jung, which is philosophy butters no parsnips. And I would say technology butters no parsnips. Um, sure, it can it can it can help move it can help move parsnips all over the world, but when the grid goes down, yeah, you're going to want exactly. some parsnips locally. It's not going to help you if you have parsnips 300 miles away. Yeah, right. And that's uh, I believe there's uh, somebody that's somewhat popular right now, Steve Zahn, who is also talking about how. There is going to be a uh, a diminishment of population, um, and economical change that has to happen where where the countries need to get more regional. Uh, that the the network between Mexico and the United States and Canada needs to become more tight knit, rather than relying on massive ships, shipping to and fro from you know across the way. 
Okay, this is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. And this, this, well, I read it on the internet, so it must be true. Um, but I, I did hear this from a reliable source that they take chickens from horrible factory farms in Arkansas, ship them to China to be processed, yeah. and then bring them back to the United States to be eaten. Yeah. Something that's like nuts. That. Yeah. That's completely nuts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is, and and that's and that's just one example of of many things very similar to that. I did want to touch on one more thing before uh, I let you go, and that would be uh, this um, coming awareness of uh, external forces and entities from outside uh, that seem to have been here all along. Uh, and I'm talking about the uh, extraterrestrial, the aliens, that sort of thing. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about that as far as uh, what what's going to happen in the future, how that's going to look. And then, of course, uh, if you dive into it a little bit, it does seem that the message being brought forth is that uh, the, the earthlings need to love their earth a little bit more and be careful of their resources and their environment and kind of become more environmentalists almost before they step foot in a kind of uh, open way that uh, the people need to kind of get it together a little bit more and take care of what they have. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, the first thing that occurs to me is that it doesn't really matter whether that message comes from extraterrestrials or from trees or from God or from the goddess or from, I mean, it's just, that's a sound message. Yeah. And right. Um, I'm always, I mean, this, this is, this is, I, I don't really think about extraterrestrials very much. Um, but I don't mind if I can use this language, I don't mind discussing woo things a little bit. <laughs> um, I'm for crying out loud. I wrote an entire book about whether the muse actually does exist or whether <laughs> that's an extension of my unconscious and yeah. I fall on the actual existing thing, but it, it doesn't really matter to me where it comes from, but that the important thing now the muse i hope the muse doesn't get mad at me for saying it doesn't matter whether it's <laughs> yeah, but the, the the point is that uh i mean there have been plenty of times when i have been walking through a forest and i will be stuck riding and i'll say i need i need some help here and and i'll get some help and it doesn't matter I have friends who are Christian who would say that was God. Right. I say it's the trees and the muse. There's one that I, I wrote this piece that's the, the most beautiful thing I've ever written um, called Pretend You're a River. It's in my book Endgame. And uh, I always say that I wrote that, uh, that, that the most beautiful thing I ever written was not written by me. It was written by a river that I was trying to figure out what is it like to be, I wanted to write something from the perspective, what's it like to be a river? And I tried for months and or weeks and I couldn't do it. And then I thought, well, this is silly. I live 50 yards from a stream. So I walked down to the stream. I said, what's it like to be you? Boom. I got mm. the whole thing. Yeah. And I just ran inside and wrote it down as fast as I could. So my point is, we could say that was the unconscious. We could say it was the muse. I think in this case, it was actually the stream. But it doesn't matter to me. Right. Does, does it make sense? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, uh, and so the, the sounding I, board. I call it the sounding board, and it doesn't matter what it is, but you do have to sound it out. And 
and we will get a response. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And that'd be we could do a whole discussion on that if you wanted. Um, that that's that's also really important because the we don't have to do this all alone. You don't have to. Uh, there's, I'm going to see if I can find this quote that's not by me, um, that I just, I just love, which is, um, hold on. Uh, okay. Uh, this is by Tom Prado. Uh, it's in a book called The World of Delacroix, the, 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 um, the painter. Um, the romantic intelligence was sharply aware of antithesis and, antithesis and grope towards synthesis. In contrast to today's existentialist, who holds that in a world devoid of meaning, it is man's job to create his own meanings, the romantic felt that the world was full of meanings if he could only see it whole. With his do-it-yourself mm -hmm. kit, the existentialist must make his own universe. The romantic assumed that God had already done a lot of the work. And there's a line by Albrecht Dürer, the painter, or the artist, the engraver, that is basically, art is implicit in nature. Whoever can see it has it, basically. Uh, right. I think I've heard that one. Yeah. Do, does that make sense with your question? Does that tie back to your question that... Well, a little bit. I mean, uh, there's been a lot of um, revelations that there are species that do exist outside of this world. And I don't necessarily mean um, dimensionally, or but of course, there's a lot of talk of that too. So it does, it does reference that. But more specifically, um, that there is a, a need for uh, the people of Earth to get it together to to learn how to uh, break the barriers down, uh, stop the war, learn how to live more in a harmonious way. I believe your answer to that would be that the population has to be diminished by a significant amount before there could be any kind of approach uh, of that kind of harmony. Well, and again, every cell. I'm not saying that I think there should be forced abortions. I'm not saying what I'm saying is, is kind of like a doctor that's like, we have a condition and I want, you know, it's like emphysema. It's like, you might first consider quitting smoking. Um, there are things we could do. Like the, the number one thing to reduce birth rate is to around the world is to teach girls to read mm. because if they even have that level of independence and empowerment, they usually choose to have fewer babies and to have them later. Right. So a lot of this stuff that, I mean, again, when people talk about reducing population, they usually talk about really decronian things. But the truth is, if you ask most people in the world, they only want a couple kids. Right. They don't, they don't want to have, most don't want to have eight or nine. And so really all we have to do to stop overpopulation is to, uh, stop the capitalist growth imperative. There's that authoritarian mm -hmm. technique again. Right. And also take on the uh, patriarchal sky god who, you know, thinks mm -hmm. that, that men should control women's reproduction. But back to your original point, yes, we have to. The, the fact that we're an overshoot doesn't mean that we can't do things 
on personal and collective scales to try to there's a, a friend of mine, the, the guy who put the thing on the napkin 30 years ago, he he says that as things become increasing, increasingly chaotic, he wants to make sure that some doors remain open. Hmm. What he means by that is a bull trout are still alive in 10 years. They may be around in 100, but if they're gone in 10, they're gone forever. Right. And so right. there are things we can do. We can devote our lives to trying to protect what we, what we love. Um, the way I sign one of my books is um uh i can't remember the way i sign one of my books <laughs> is find what you love defend your beloved and it doesn't matter what it is like you said at the beginning of this or i don't know if we had, had started recording yet or not but you said i think before the beginning that you wanted for this to be long form answers mm -hmm. one of the things that is under assault by Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, by TV is long form thinking. Yeah. And one of the things I desperately want to do is to, as well as defending salamanders and frogs and forests and bears and all of them, I also want to defend long form thinking because yeah. these are not issues that can be answered in sound bites. And these are not areas that can be explored. These are discussions we need to have that last days and weeks and months to figure out, okay, what are we going to do about overshoot? Mm -hmm. What's the best thing? What are we going to do about the fact that, so we're dependent on technologies and uh, it's like Daniel Quinn says that um, one of our problems is we have become dependent for our very lives on the system that's killing the planet. That is a discussion that I want us to be having in public every day. And, to come up with whatever whatever we can do. And um, so no matter what you love, it's probably under assault. Another great example, I knew this guy, it didn't work out, but I knew this guy who in the tiny little town where I lived, he, he opened a bookstore. Hmm. I mean, independent bookstores are under assault. Yeah, right. And um, so, you know, whatever, again, it doesn't just have to be, red-legged frogs. It can, it can also be independent bookstores. So the, the deal I did, which didn't work out in the end, but the deal I did with him, as I said, I commit to buying one book a month from you mm. because I want to support independent bookstores. Yeah. Um, so we can do stuff like that, you know, supporting whether, you know, a local, local food networks, you know? Yeah. Right. So years ago, there was a, a, a CSA here in town, community supported agriculture, and I don't even eat that many vegetables, but I bought a box. I mean, I bought the weekly box and I would usually give all the, you know, a lot of the kale away. Um, I would eat a bit of potatoes, but <laughs> like I don't even eat kale, but I didn't care. I was going to support yeah, the CSA. So I think there's all, you know, whatever, whatever is important to you. And here's another thing, just no matter what it is, get off your butt and do it. And, um, and I'll tell one more story here, which is that, the smartest decision I ever made was in my 20s. I was, I knew the problems were really big, that we're in big trouble environmentally. I knew that things are just getting worse. And I realized I wasn't paying enough for gas. And I can't do anything about the larger scale problems, but I, I don't know, it's so big, I don't know. So I didn't do anything because I didn't know what to do. Yeah. And I realized I'm not paying enough for gas and to cover the environmental and social costs. So what I decided is for every dollar I spent on gas, 
I was going to give $1 to a local environmental organization, but I have any money. Hmm. And so I also said that I could pay myself $5 an hour to do activism. So back then it would cost 10 bucks to fill your tank. And yeah, those, those, those were the days. Mm. Anyway, peak oil, my friend. <laughs> yeah, anyway, yeah, um, <laughs> when, 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 I, if I would fill my tank once a week, that meant I had to do two hours of activism that week. Mm. And I started off writing letters to the editor and I was so scared that I would use fake names because I was way too scary. Yeah. And, um, and then I moved from there to doing anti-fur demo, anti-circus demo. I didn't, I just knew circuses are bad. I didn't know why. And I just showed up and I didn't bring a sign or anything. I just showed up. They handed me a sign. It was like, circuses are bad. And somebody <laughs> would come up and say, why are circuses bad? And I say, talk to the guy next to me. You know, yeah. it's like, I didn't, there's a great line by Florence Nightingale. I attribute my success to the fact that I never gave nor took an excuse. Hmm. And there were no excuses. If I spend 10 bucks on gas, I'm doing two hours of activism. And yeah. within, I don't know, six months, I was having so much fun of the activism. I couldn't keep it track. And so the reason I think that's, oh, one more thing is that I don't write books. I can't write books because writing a book is too big and scary. Mm -hmm. But what I can do is I can write a page and then tomorrow I can write a page. Right. And then after I can write a page and then in a year I got a book. Um, there's a line from my great grandma, which is, and it's a cliche, but um, inch by inch life's a cinch, yard by yard life's hard. And we can't stop all these problems all at once. But what you can do is you can start your radio program. Yeah. And you can do that. You can do that today. And then, you know, you can also, you see that there's a demo against nuclear weapons. You know, you can show up and hold a sign so somebody else makes for you. Um, right. You know, so so my big thing is find what you love and then just do it. Defend it. Yeah. Defend it. And shop local. It sounds like that's another uh, important thing. Keep it local and act. Yep. Yeah, I like that. Now, where can uh, where can everybody find your uh, books? Imagine um, Amazon and whatnot. But, uh, well, are there local bookshops that will well, be able to order them? <laughs> um, yeah, I was going to say, if, if you happen to live where there's a local bookstore, you can certainly yeah. get it there. Um, and otherwise, you know, Amazon, the evil empire. Mm -hmm. um, Amazon sells... I read this like a year or two ago. Amazon sells, I believe, more than 50% of the books in the United States. Gosh, and that's wow. another example of an authoritarian technique because yeah. I don't care what your politics are. If you control more than 50% of yeah. the books, if you decide not to carry a book or if you decide to unpromote it or whatever to make it difficult to buy it, that's, that's a completely non-democratic Right, and I don't care if some local bookstore. Of course, a local bookstore can decide what they're going to not not going to carry, but this is kind of like once you control fifty percent of the books that are sold in the United States, you become almost a public utility. Yeah, um, yeah. of knowledge, a public yeah. utility of knowledge, which is horrifying. Right. Yeah, definitely a well, private entity to, that uh, the libraries. You know, it's like, well, now we're not carrying this book anymore. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, hold on a minute. Yeah. yeah, and and I'm really very yes, yeah, I completely agree with you. Yeah. Well, thank you again for being here tonight and uh really great discussion. Oh, well, thank you so much. And thanks for your great questions. Hey, thank you. Take care.